Chapter 25 of The Life and Adventures of Peter Wilkins. Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. The Life and Adventures of Peter Wilkins by Robert Paltick. Chapter 25. My wife was now upon her journey to her father's, but where that was, or how far off, it was impossible for me to conceive by her description of the way, for she distinguished it not by miles or leagues, but by swangians and names of rocks, seas, and mountains, which I could neither comprehend the distance of from each other, nor from Grandevalet, where I was. I understood by her, indeed, there was a great sea to be passed, which would take her up almost a day and night having the children with her before she reached the next arco though she could do it herself she said and strain hard in a summer's night but if the children should flag by the way as there was no resting place between us and batringdrig the next arco it might be dangerous to them so she would take the above time for their sakes after this i found by what she said there was a narrow sea to pass, and a prodigious mountain, before she reached her own country, and that her father's was but a little beyond that mountain. This was all I could know in general about it. At their departure she and the children had taken each a small provision for their flight, which hung about their necks in a sort of purse. I cannot say, notwithstanding this journey was taken with my concurrence and consent, that I was perfectly easy when they were gone, for my affection for them all would work up imaginary fears too potent for my reason to dispel, and which at first sat with no easy pressure upon my mind. This my pretty babies at home perceiving used all the little winning arts they could to divert and keep up my spirits, and from day to day, by taking them abroad with me and playing with and amusing them at home, I grew more and more persuaded that all would go right with the absent, and that in due time I should see them return again. But as the winter set in, I went little abroad, and then we employed ourselves within doors in preparing several things which might not only be useful and ornamental, if the old glum should come to see us, but might also divert us and make the time pass less tediously. The first thing I went upon was a table, which, as my family consisted of so many, I intended to make big enough for us all. With that view I broke up a couple of chests, and, taking the two sides of one of them, I nailed them edge to edge by strong, thick pieces underneath at each end and in the middle. Then I took two chest lids with their hinges, nailing one to each side of my middle piece, which made two good flaps. After this, with my tools, of which I had now a chest full, I chopped out of new stuff and planned four strong legs quite square, and nailed them strongly to each corner of my middle board. I then nailed pieces from one leg to the other, and nailed the bed likewise to them. Then I fastened a border quite round within six inches from the bottom, from foot to foot, which held all fast together. When all this was done, still my table was imperfect. I could not put up the flaps, having no proper support. 
To remedy this, I sought out a broad slip from a chest side, and boring a large hole through the center, I spiked it up to the underside of the table's bed with a spindle I contrived just loose enough to play round the head of the spike, filing down that part of the spindle which passed through the bed of the table and riveting it close, so that when my flaps were set up, I pulled the slip crosswise of the table, and when the flaps were down, the slip turned under the top of the table lengthwise. Next, under each flap, I nailed a small slip lengthwise of the flaps, to raise them on a level, when up, with the top of the table. When I had thus completed the several parts of this needful utensil, I spent some time in pains by scraping and rubbing to render it all as elegant as could be, and the success so well answered my wish that I was not a little proud of the performance. And what rendered my work thereon a still more agreeable task was my pretty infant's company, who stood by expressing their wonder and approbation at every stroke. Now I had gotten a table. I wanted chairs to it, for as yet we had only sat round the room upon chests, which formed a bench of the whole circumference, they stood so thick. There was no moving of them without a monstrous trouble every time I might have occasion to set out my table. Besides, if I could have dragged them backwards and forwards, they were too low to be commodious for seats. So I resolved to make some chairs and stools also that might be manageable. I will not trouble you with the steps I took in the formation of these. Only in general you must know that some more chests I broke up to that purpose served me for timber, out of which I framed six sizable handsome chairs and a competent number of stools. But now that I was turned joiner, I had another convenience to provide for. I had nothing wherein to enclose things and preserve them from dust, except the chests, and they were quite unfit for holding liquors, victuals, and such like matters in open shells as most of my vessels were. Wherefore, having several boards now remaining of the boxes I had broken up for chairs and stools, I bethought me of supplying this great deficiency. So, of these spare boards, in a workmanlike way, for by this time I was become a tolerable mechanic, I composed a very tight closet, holding half a dozen broad shelves, shut up by a good pair of doors, with a lock and key to fasten them. These jobs took me up almost three months, and I thought I had not employed them idly, but for the credit and service of my family. I was now again at leisure for farther projects. I was uncertain as to my wife's return, how soon she might be with me, or how much longer she might stay. But I was sure I could do nothing in the meanwhile more grateful than increasing, by all means in my power, the accommodations of my house, for the more polite as well as convenient reception of her father, or any else who might accompany her home in the way of a retinue, as she talked of. I saw plainly I had not room for lodging them, and that was a circumstance of main importance to be provided for. Hereupon, I thought of adding a long apartment to one of my outer rooms, to range against the side of the rock, but reflecting that such a thing would be quite useless unless I could finish it in time, so as to be complete when my guests came, and not knowing how soon that might be, I resolved to quit this design, 
and I fell upon another which might do as well, and required much less labor and fewer days to perfect. I remembered that amongst those things my wife had packed up on board the ship, and which came home through the gulf, there were two of the largest sails, and a couple of a smaller size. These I carried to the wood, and tried them in several places to see where they might be disposed, to most advantage in the nature of a tent. And having found a convenient spot to my purpose, I cut diverse poles for supporters, and making straining lines of my matweed, I pitched a noble one, sufficient to cover or entertain a numerous company, and so tight everywhere as to keep out the weather. The front of this new apartment I hung with blue cloth, which had a very genteel effect. I had almost forgotten to tell you that I contrived, by hanging one of the smaller sails across, just in the middle, which I could let down or raise up at pleasure, to divide the tent occasionally into two distinct rooms. When I had proceeded thus far, there were still wanting seats for this additional building, as I may call it, and though I could spare some chests to sit on, I found they would not half do. For a supplement, then, I took my axe and felled a couple of great trees, one from each side of the tent, sawed off the tops, and cut each of the trunks in two about the middle. These huge cylinders I rolled into the tent with a good deal of toil and difficulty. Two of them I thrust into the inner division, and left two in the outer. I placed them as benches on both sides. Then, with infinite pains, I shaved the upper face of each, smooth and flat, and pared off all the little knots and roughnesses of the front, so that they were fitted to sit on, and their own weight fixed them in the place where I intended them to be. At the upper end of the farther chamber I set three chests lengthwise for seats, or any other use I might see fit to put them to. During these operations we were all hard at it, and no hand idle but Dicky in arms and Sally, whom he kept in full employ. But Pedro, being a sturdy lad, could drive a nail, and lift or carry the things I wanted. And Jimmy and David, though so young, could pick up the chips, hold a nail or the lamp, or be some way or other useful. For I always preached to them the necessity of earning their bread before they ate it, and not think to live on mine and their brother's labor. The nights being pretty long, after work was over, and Sarah had fed her brother and laid him in his hammock, we used to sit all down to enjoy ourselves at a good meal, for we were never regular at that till night. And then after supper, my wife being absent, one or other of the young ones would begin with something they had before heard me speak of, by saying, Daddy, how did you used to do this or that in England? Then all ears were immediately opened to catch my answer, which certainly brought on something else done either there or elsewhere. And by their little questions and my answers, they would sometimes draw me into a story of three hours long, till perhaps two or three of my audience were falling asleep, and then we all went to bed. I verily believe my children would, almost any of them, from the frequent repetition of these stories, have given a sufficient account of England to have gained a belief from almost any Englishman of their being natives there. 
I frequently observed that when we had begun upon Cornwall and traversed the mines, the sea-coast, or talked of the fine gentlemen's seats and such things, one would start up and, if the discourse flagged ever so little, would cry, "'Aye, but, Daddy, what did you do when the crocodile came after you out of the water?' And another, before that subject was half-ended, and I was forced to enter on every one they started, would be impatient for the story of the lion, and I always took notice that the part each had made the most reflections on was always most acceptable to the same person. But poor Sally would never let the conversation drop without some account of the muletto. It was such a pretty, gentle creature, she said. End of chapter 25 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista